Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. today is George Benson. Uh, he hails from my old stomping grounds, Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and that's in Canada if you don't know. But he's now relocated to Vancouver. And, and like a lot of younger professionals, describing him by his job is less effective than describing him by what he actually does with his precious time on this earth, including a bit of time with the Green Building Association, and, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, you'll be hard pressed, said one of his colleagues, to find a more relentless advocate on climate policy, inclusive economic development, and equity. That's a great term, uh, relentless advocate. Anyways, today we're going to talk about uh, one of his passions, how cities can lead the transition to a more just, equal, and sustainable world. So welcome, George. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Right. So let's let's get to it. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I read some of the things you've been reading on uh, a couple of places, um, Impactor and, uh, and Medium. Uh, I wanted to ask you about some of the things you've been writing. You said, where are the points of nexus uh, that you believe, the policies, the investments, the regulations, that, that might most effectively and quickly transform cities from the, uh, well, quite frankly, the traffic bloated, carbon emitting, structurally unequal places they seem to be coming more and more despite some of our our best efforts let's take vancouver as an example hmm. Hmm. great question um i think that i would be remiss as a planner if i didn't say that land use regulations were a critical nexus point as you say um for those issues we have in many cases quite outdated in some cases, very parochial zoning structures, regulations, et cetera, that are in many cases forcing us to remain a car-centric, unsafe, pedestrian-oriented, um, and in many cases, economically unequal uh, city and urban realm. So I think a lot of the work that planners and cities need to be doing is to reorient the regulations they have at the, at the zoning level um, and, and some of the urban design guidelines that they have. You can think of those as kind of like the, the DNA of a city. They're, they're what shapes everything that comes afterwards. And, you know, the streets and the buildings are kind of the bones and the muscle, the sinew, et cetera. Um, but it all starts with that basic genetic code that's laid out in those policies. So we really need to be shifting those, I think, is, a, is a, a critical first step. And then you get into bigger questions like the economic resources that cities have, how much taxation power. Um, a lot of those services and needs can be delivered really effectively at the local level. But um, it starts with, I think, addressing those policies that we really have a handle on today. Well, you know, the thing about zoning that just gets my back up, George, is that, I mean, it seems like all the good intentions that politicians have get thwarted by the vested interests of people who uh, sell cars or have a stake in, uh, you know, new developments and or things like this and building roads, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And it, it just doesn't seem like uh, the zoning, like you take Vancouver, they've been struggling with affordable housing for years and years and years, and it doesn't seem to be changing all that much. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in, in many cases, because we're, we're tinkering on the margins, right? We're not questioning, for example, the, the, the intelligence of limiting one home per lot in many parts of the city. Now, Vancouver's done a lot to overcome 
what in other places are pretty abysmal uh, standards for for land use planning and um, and the spacing out of businesses and uh, and homes. But you know, take for example, take for example Vancouver. People forget that it was founded very much as a land development exercise. You know, you had the originally the railway, the Trans Canadian Railway. Uh, was going to end in Port Moody. A bunch of land developers decided they wanted to make more money. The end of the railway was shifted to Vancouver. Um, you know, we were founded in addition to like the colonization of British Columbia. We were founded as a place where land development was going to happen. And very quickly, you start to see funny things happening to tamp down the ability of others to get in. And I think that if you look at what the 21st century looks like, it's going to be a diverse, mixed-use, walkable. Um, transit-oriented city that has a variety of economic activities going on uh, and that there's not these sort of hard barriers between, you know, uh, someone who wants to, to run a sewing business in their basement. Today, in most cases, that's illegal. Right. <laughs> uh, if you want to be upcycling um, products, you can't do that in a lot of parts of the city where you just say, nope, it's a basement suite or it's a home, nothing else shall live here. So I think yeah. we need to start reevaluating those sacred cows and, and uh, forging new ground. Well, you know, what strikes me is like if you go to Vancouver and it's this is pretty typical of a lot of cities, uh, you've got your downtown core where a lot of the business takes place. Uh, and then you've got surrounding that, you know, some fairly big money places where people have big yards and big houses and this sort of stuff. And, you know, I, I, yeah. And, and so they're not going to give that up. Where how do you see the development of the city taking place? And this could be, applies equally to Toronto as it does to Chicago or Houston or or Vancouver. Sure. Yeah. How, do, how do we change that? Do we find, are we going to see decentralization? Or are we going to see new hubs? Or, or what's going to happen? I think we're going to see a lot of new hubs. Um, and I think if you look at a city like Vancouver, or even the surrounding region, Metro Vancouver, um, I was just in Chicago, you know, there are emerging nodes in a city that are, that are in many cities that are popping up that are, that are emerging for a variety of reasons, right? They're on transportation corridors, maybe they're a historic hub, Maybe there's a cultural revitalization of a community there. Uh, in Vancouver, we have um, Hogan's Alley, which was a historically black neighborhood that was bulldozed in the creation of the highways. There's a whole bunch of regeneration happening now due to some incredible nonprofit work. You know, there are a variety of reasons these new nodes are emerging. But to the question of how we get there, um, I think the, the politics of it are becoming front and center. Planning and zoning and land use are no, seen as, no longer seen as this banal, backroom, bureaucratic exercise. People realize there's real power at play here. Now, in Vancouver, we have just over 50% of our population now are renters, and they recognize that the zoning regime of, you know, protecting big old houses with pools and large uh, yeah, hedgerow yards um, isn't in their best interest. And so they're questioning, that, again, they're questioning that sacred cow. And I think in a lot of cities, we're seeing people say, hey, wait a second, you really benefit, large landowner, from the way this structure works right now. And I don't. Why are we protecting you at, when I'm, you know, facing rents that are going up 10% uh, a year? Why are we still protecting this old way of doing things? So I think the politics are really going to be where that starts to come to uh, come to light. And, and hopefully there's a way forward for us through that. Yeah, I mean, it seems almost impossible for younger people in Vancouver and a lot of cities, for that matter, to, to be able to afford to kind of live where they want to live. And I, and I think that's kind of tragic ultimately for the economy and for, for diversity. Um, you know, I've always been interested in the development of the, of the uh, rapid transit system or the, the SkyTrain there in Vancouver. Are they going to mm -hmm. keep expanding that? I've noticed over the years they've done some good things there. Yeah, I mean, it, our, there was actually a really interesting study that came out the other day 
um, talking about the proportion of, um, of workers of all types in Vancouver um, that use transit here. And we have one of the highest shares of work-related transit usage in North America and, and possibly in the world, but I, I, I certainly in North America, we're, we're safe in that category. Um, and so, you know, it means that our transit system is critical to the economic success of the region. It's not just a nice to have for people that, you know, want to read a book on the train. It's actually a central facet of our economic prosperity. And that means that we have to continue investing in it. So uh, TransLink, our regional transit agency right now, is amidst its plan to, 20, uh, to 2050. So looking at what the full scope of, um, of potential investments could be, the short answer is yes, we're going to keep investing. We need to keep investing. Um, but as with many cities in North America, certainly in Canada, uh, we are critically handicapped by the lack of resources we have in terms of taxation power. Cities need more financial resources if they're going to meet just the baseline expectations to keep up their infrastructure. But if we're really going to shoot for the moon and build the stuff that we need and will last us generations, then we need a heck of a lot more money in the pot to do that. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that conversation is opening up now. Well, I want to I want to also talk a little bit about, uh, you know, this whole idea of transforming uh, economies to, to ones with purpose. I mean, that's kind of a millennial Gen Z talking point, or at least that's what I, that's what I see it as. Because when I wrote my book, Invest Like You Give a Damn, I interviewed a lot of millennials, not so many Gen Zs, but, and, you know, they were just as focused on mortgages and bills and kids, et cetera. They didn't seem a hell of a lot different mm -hmm. from the boomers, except is what I'm trying to say, I suppose. And you know, when it comes to things yeah. like when it comes to things like urban design, they're buying into the car dream. And I, my worry is that uh, you know, with uh, uh, electric vehicles coming on board, they're just going to keep buying those cars, and we're still going to have the same bloody urban development problems as as we've kind of had. So that's the backdrop what the question is do you think a purpose-driven economy is at all possible given that so many people don't seem to want to change it seems like we're kind of like lemmings on cracks with our with our heads buried <laughs> in our phones sprinting towards a climate abyss that's quite a stark picture in some in some ways you know it's, it's a nuanced picture right um millennials and gen z to my knowledge continue to be the the lowest, uh, have the lowest rate of licensing for cars of, of any prior generation um, uh, before the invention of the car, up, up to the invention of the car. Um, we are, you know, driving less as a generation. We are buying fewer cars and we're getting fewer licenses. So I, I think, I think part of the story there is, is, is good news in that, that patterns are shifting. I think to your point about climate crisis, the question is, are they shifting fast enough? Now the EV revolution is exciting. Yes. I think a world with no air pollution uh, due to cars with fewer accidents. Let's say if we have slightly more automated vehicles, maybe we don't get there all the way, but you know, that's a good world. That has a lot of features that I like, but it's not the whole story. As you're saying, we still deserve to live in a world where there are places you can go that there are no cars. You know, there are places like uh, there, you know, there are Spanish cities and, and I believe it's Slovakian city that have been getting a lot of press lately about the fact that they have these car-free districts. There's a ton to be excited about in an even more expansive vision of urban transformation. Um, you know, the, the idea of, of where do millennials come down on all these um, different uh, uh, consumer trends and, and potential points of transformation is, is an open question. I think if you, if you look at like the baseline of what people care about, you know, do they have a home, do they have a job, are they going to feed their kids or feed themselves? Of course, young people today still care about those things and they have to, there's, there's no choice. 
But if you start to if you start to tease out like what what is the type of job they're looking for, what kind of business do they want to buy from, um, who do they want to put their put their name next to when it comes to their employer, all of those choices are really impacted by the the perception of what kind of mission and purpose a company has or an organization. And I, I can I speak quite confidently, I think, from the vantage point of of a lot of the young people that I work with, and I, I'm involved in a number of youth networks. All of them are making decisions about where they work, what they buy, and, and who they associate with on the basis of, can you say you have a positive environmental, social, or economic positive contribution to the world? And I think the success of companies like Lush and Patagonia, Beyond Meat, et cetera, it mm. proves that there's something shifting there. But again, no. is it going to shift fast enough? I don't know. Well, uh, it might be a perception of bias because it sounds like the kind of people you run with are the kind of people I love to meet. Listen, my, my guest today <laughs> is George Benson. He's an advocate and consultant on all things sustainable, particularly in the urban realm. Well, we're going to take a little break now and listen to a bit of music and we'll be right back. my guest, uh, George Benson, and we've been talking about the transition to a purpose economy, thinking a little bit about urban areas. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, George, it, well, it seems that no matter what they say, that the private sector that is, that they want to see positive changes, but they want it within the scope of what I would call business and lifestyle as usual. And, and these are the things that are hurting equality in the, in the climate more than anything else. And I think at the very least, they're disinterested in the kind of systemic change you've been talking about and touching on, that kind of systemic mm -hmm. change that's really required to fundamentally address the climate crisis and growing inequality. Now, having said that, where do you think the public sector fits in to um, maybe change that attitude and get different kinds of responses? That's a great question, and I, I, I agree with your assessment. I think, you know, we look at the development of, of principles for responsible investing or um, any number of, of private sector initiatives that in many cases are, are achieving positive results, right? You know, I think of like the We Mean Business Coalition, they're doing great work uh, driving changes in electric vehicle adoption or science-based targets for, for large corporate enterprises, et cetera. There's good work there, right? But it is still saying, okay, you know, we expect this kind of return on investment, we want to do business in this way, yada, yada, right? I, I kind of, I, I've been writing about this a little bit, and, and to me, there's sort of four things, really, that, that the public sector can do. And the first one is uh, to change how they're funded, so to make it harder for companies to get money unless they can adhere to clear guidelines about socioeconomic and environmental good. Now, that could be something like B Corp certification, it could be uh, following along with things like the uh, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, et cetera, but to, to hinge their efficacy and their ability to, to be financially successful on particular um, on particular regulations that, that guide them. Um, the, there's also the business model change too. So again, B Corp, 
there's lots of ways that I think we can use regulations, guidelines, purchasing, government purchasing to shift the internal business model to an organization um, and get them to and say, hey, if you want to do business with us, we expect you to do these kinds of things um, if you're going to come to us. Then one of the things that's most interesting and as, as a millennial, um, this is very important to me, is, is representation. We need to change who the people are in charge of these companies. And, <laughs> Um, Kevin Milligan, a UBC economist, just wrote about this recently. There's, there's, it's very much in the air, but representation on boards matters. We need people with sustainability experience. We need people of color on boards. We need women. The fact that you can look at the Fortune 500 uh, and find more men with the name John than you can women of color is disturbing, and we need to fix things like that. So representation is crucial. And then there's the, then there's the classic consumer angle. You know, there's the, the public consumption of things. Every individual consumer is shifting, you know, demanding meatless products, things like that, um, greater sustainability initiatives. But also as the public, you know, the UBC in Vancouver, for example, our biggest university, they're the single largest procurer of food in the province of British Columbia. Now, they might only buy 1% of the total food, but they're the single largest bulk buyer. When they decide they want to go fair trade or when they decide they go meatless, it matters. And I think we need to recognize the public sector across all of its facets, every, every level, Crown Corps, you name it, has buying power. And I want to see us use more of that to direct these companies. Yeah, George, listen, I got a, I got a question for you on that line then, because I agree. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the public sector to encourage, uh, entice, force, coerce the private sector into doing things more responsibly. Uh, but my question is this, if we've got 10 years effectively less before we've got entirely damaging and irreversible uh, problems with climate, uh, what would be the one thing that you would do now if you had the magic government wand? <laughs> uh, I, think, I think I'd start with finance, honestly. I think I'd start with how things are funded. I think the task force on financial related, uh, sorry, task force on climate related financial disclosures, um, Bloomberg and, and Mark Carney and all those folks, if we really deeply and meaningfully embedded a, a true accounting of the costs of doing business, the socioeconomic and the environmental costs of doing business, we, our world would look very different, right? The social cost of carbon, depending how you look at it, is anywhere from 55 to $250 a ton uh, that's emitted. Now, are we going to tax that like that? Probably not tomorrow, but there is, we have to understand that everything we do has a cost. Uh, and if we start pushing companies and all of our organizations, not just the private sector, right? It's public sector too. We need to do the accounting for all of our business transactions in a meaningful, holistic way. And if we do that, I think we're going to make tremendous waves. Right. All right. Well, I'm a hockey player, played for 32 years. I have a different view. I say nationalize Exxon and nationalize Monsanto, and then see what happens to the rest of the companies. <laughs> that will definitely send some waves too, that's for sure. <laughs> Anyways, I usually just do that in my dreams at night, but I got a last question for you. Uh, don't you think it's sure a little thing. bit ironic uh, that uh, a lot of what we're suggesting, people are suggesting that is important for this transition to a purpose economy is all about you know, slowing things down. Yeah, yet you, you noticed, mm -hmm. I noted in one of your pieces, it's hyperbolic. Uh, it's not hyperbolic to say we live in an age of acceleration. How do we square mm -hmm. those two? How do we square the two? We need to slow down. We need to live with less. We need to want less. Mm -hmm. But everything's going faster. <laughs> 
I don't, I don't want to sound dramatic, but to me, that really is the critical challenge of our time is that we have this need to slow down on a number of fronts, right? We need to be better at consulting a broad array of people in the decisions that we make. We need to be more democratic in the things that we do um, across all these fronts. And then in the material world, like we need to as you say, consume less, consume differently, consume more slowly. We shouldn't be buying um, you know, a, a new shirt every two weeks because it's fast fashion, we throw it out. Uh, there has to be a, a more sustainable cadence to our world, both materially and socially. And yet we have this timeline, uh, whether it's ecological collapse or otherwise, that we have to adhere to. So I, I don't have an answer uh, in terms of how we square that circle because it's just such a complex problem. But I think we need to live in that tension more and need to talk about the ways, the, the moments where we can slow, slow our society down and the moments where we need to, um, where we need to speed up. I think some of that comes, uh, comes with prioritizing what conversations are important. Um, I get really frustrated, um, as you probably saw in the Democratic debates uh, in the United States, people talking, I think it was Elizabeth Warren who said, you know, let's stop talking about these damn straws. Let's talk about the major polluters. Let's talk about the big systemic actions. If we need to take a little time to figure out those big systemic actions, let's do that. But let's not waste our time talking about small uh, incremental changes and lose all of our energy fighting for an inch. Let's say we need to take a mile. Let's, let's figure out how to do it and let's take that mile. Uh, I, I think the time for um, um, spending our time equally in all these conversations has passed. We have to prioritize. And in many cases that, you know, I think prioritizing greenhouse gas reductions right now is something we really have to focus on. Right. Well, there's a lot of things we'd all like to fix at the same time, but it's just probably not possible. George, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. You're uh, not only a relentless advocate, you're an articulate and well thought out uh, analyst and advocate for urban uh, sustainability and, and generally all things sustainable. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of The Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out The Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.